This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Story out of Gillum, Manitoba, which is, uh, of course, central to this focus now on the two uh, individuals being sought in a series of murders in northern B.C., Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski. Uh, interesting that Danny also mentioned the potential that they might have already left the area by uh, hand of someone who didn't know who they were. And when you're in that remote part of northeastern Manitoba, perhaps not even scouring the news, uh, otherwise distracted, maybe you're really not hip to what's going on in parts far, far away. And, uh, of course, it's been visited upon that community now, but uh, given that the Mounties still believe them to be in the area, there are a whole lot of attendant questions. And here to help in that regard, Eric Hickey is with us, director of the Center for Forensic Studies at Alliant International University. He also teaches criminal psychology at California State University at Fresno. Mr. Hickey, good to have you on the Oakley Show here in Toronto. Good afternoon. Well, it's it's good to be here. Thank you very much. All right, so as you assess these kinds of cases, a situation where you've got two people on the run, young men, uh, obviously alleged to have murdered three so far that we know about, uh, help me out here. I mean, what happens typically with a pair? Is there a leader in that uh, dynamic? Usually, um, in most cases, one becomes the leader. Um, It's kind of like in in the case of Columbine. Where Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris and Klebold got together, eventually, you know, they kind of worked together. But one becomes the leader of the two. Had they never met up, you know, they never on their own would have gone out and done these things. And I suspect these two guys on their own would never have been able to go out and, and do the murders. But once they got together, it's sort of like a synergistic experience where they just keep building, and they, you know, one plus one equals three. And now, next thing you know, they're crossing lines that they never would have done on their own, and the bravado builds. And so, and then when they rob somebody, maybe they end up killing them, shooting them, uh, and it just escalates from there. So once they cross those lines, then there's no there's no turning back. And so now they're on the run. Of course, they're, you know, hiding out somewhere. And whether they're in Gillum or they've moved on somewhere else, uh, they're staying off the radar. They do not want to be seen. So these are not two guys. This is not a Thelma and Louise scenario where they're going to go out and jump off a, a cliff. They're they are clearly wanting to stay off their radar and stay alive. Um, they probably, you know, they obviously have an understanding, somewhat of an understanding of the seriousness of what they've done, and that they're being hunted. So um, I, I don't mean they're not going to be going around killing people right now unless they were confronted, and I think that would be a, a very, very, ba- very bad thing to do for anybody to confront them. So um, if they're facing the hot whips of desperation right now, in some perverse way, do you think they could be deriving a thrill from all of this? You know, you're an interesting question. Is there a thrill involved? Um, it, there could be a certain amount of a thrill, excitement. It's kind of like uh, having a near-death experience, I suppose, uh, for them. Uh, but the reality will certainly go away. I don't. If they were real thrill killers, then why not kill again? You know, if they're that brave, I don't think they're brave at all. I think they're rather, rather cowardly, and probably both of them have, you know, at their core, a very low self-esteem. Uh, so they they kill these people, and and, and hopefully they they expect to get away with it. But you know, I I don't know that there's a lot of thrill in what they've done, but. They might have thought that would be, you know, the idea of doing it and becoming famous. And there's always people out there who support that kind of behavior. They, you know, they they see these guys as sort of um, folk heroes. You know, they're running running from, from law enforcement, challenging law enforcement. So it is an interesting combination. Uh, but I think eventually they will be caught because 
someone's going to see them. Either they're hiding right now or staying off the radar, or they're going to make a move. Um, and it's, it's possible that somebody, somebody might give them a ride somewhere else because they, they don't maybe they don't watch the news. You know, some people don't, and they, maybe they weren't aware of who they were transporting. Um, so I, I would say that uh, but at some point, some, somebody will see them and somebody will tell. Well, they're and, rather auspicious. Well, I mean, they're both uh, listed at six foot four, uh, 169 yes, pounds. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that would stand out. I guess, uh, in most areas and demographically. Eric Hickey is with us again. He teaches criminal psychology at California State University at Fresno. When we're talking about Schmigelski and McLeod on the lamb. Last we heard, it's uh, centered around Gillum in northeastern Manitoba, but uh, there's the potential, too, they might have already fled the scene. Let me backtrack, though, and uh, I'm kind of curious from a psychological point of view, uh, how does it then sort of uh, play out that one individual or both uh, colluding Take that initial life. I mean, that's a fairly significant, profound step. I mean, you're crossing the Rubicon now, aren't you? Does it get easier then, yes. subsequently? Yes. Well, once you cross that line, um, killing somebody is not what you see on television, and people do not die the way you think they might. And so, uh, and of course, the trauma. I mean, often people will say, well, I, yeah, I remember I had a gun in my hand, but I don't recall shooting them. Well, that's... Well, there probably was a, a blackout uh, from because it is so traumatic to shoot somebody and take someone's life. But in the end, um, they come to realization they've done this. Uh, and once they come to grips with it, they're either going to not do it anymore because it was so traumatic, or you know, it might just be easier for them to do it the next time because they have nothing to lose. Uh, so in this case, um, you know, two young guys are still very dangerous, and they, have, they probably have weapons. Uh, they're not looking to confront being a confrontation with law enforcement. If they get cornered, there could be a shootout. But I think if this goes on long enough, those guys may just give themselves up. Really? I mean, does it start to, I guess, uh, mentally uh, it wears on them? And, I, you know, it's like uh, fatigue makes cowards of us all and your resolve. Sure. Yeah. Is there uh, just waiting them out? Uh, or is it a fight or flight thing now where uh, they might either go out in a blaze of glory, as one of the fathers said earlier this week, or is it a case of maybe they kill themselves? Yeah, I, you know, I tend to veer away from them killing themselves. I just don't think they're into that Thelma Louise thing. I think I think they're much more into you know the place of glory. If they went that way, there's no glory in that, of course. But if they went down that 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 pathway, I, I think that they'd have to be confronted by law enforcement to do that. I don't see them walking into a store and shooting a bunch of people or anything like that. Um, they definitely don't want to be caught, and they're. You know, Staying off the radar as much as they can. So uh, I think this will be a, a law enforcement uh, experience. Somebody will see them, they'll report them, and, and they'll corner them somewhere. They'll either negotiate them out and they'll walk out of there, or they will end up, someone's going to end up getting killed. Well, is there pro- a prospect then of death by, uh, you know, suicide by cop in effect? That's a, that is a possibility. I mean, obviously, law enforcement doesn't want to, does not want to have to face that, but you know, they do what they have to do if these guys decide to, to go out that way. Um, but you know, as you say, we become cowards, and it may well be that at some point they go, you know, I really don't want to die. I thought about this, so you just walk out, you put your gun down, you walk out, and you hold your hands up and say, okay, I'm done. And that may well be a scenario. And then I know the mother had written a letter. You know, hoping that maybe on social media he would one of them would see the see the letter and help them kind of figure out, hey, let's just give this up and, and get away from that the crazy dreams we've had and the fantasies and let's go back and and face, and face the music. Yeah. 
Again, with Eric Hickey, teaches criminal psychology at California State University. Let me go back to uh, the early years because it came up uh, earlier this week that these kids back in grade school had already sort of at least one, uh, Mr. Schmigelski, had expressed uh, certain dark visions of wanting to kill classmates and how he would go about it and, uh, you know, chop them up as well as kill himself and so on. And so are these, is that typical uh, of young people just to talk about this and, you know, fantasize that way? Or are these early flags that should be... Uh, paid attention to and maybe drawn to somebody's attention? Well, it's not normal behavior, normal thought, thinking processes. Um, I've been many people who have gone down that pathway, but this is not common. Um, usually those, those are warning signs that there's something going on in the family. You know, there's, you know, family, you know, maybe there's a father abuse or, or, or neglect or abandonment, but there, there's things that are causing pain to that child. And so they, it comes out in their writings and, and their anger, they, they become angry, um, you know, and, and so some, sometimes they, they just, uh, they fantasize about it. I remember the goth era when lots of these kids were dressing as goths, and, and they write some pretty dark stuff, but they weren't getting into criminal activity. Um, but this is, to me, this is writing and putting in, especially when they put it into the, onto the internet and social media, this is really a cry for help. This is telling, hey, you know, I'm, I'm writing these things because I'm in pain. And they don't tell you that they can't because it's very difficult to articulate. And we often see these guys getting involved with, you know, harming animals and setting fires and, you know, any way they, they can have a voice. But when they become adults, as they get into teens, then they can do adult things. And so they kind of leave those things behind and then they start acting out. And so I suspect once they start piecing this together, they're going to go back and they're going to find that, that history of, of neglect and abuse and, and failure and being bullied and feeling disengaged, much as we've seen with, with Columbine offenders. Yeah, you know, I mean, that brings up the prospect that uh, with Columbine, Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris, I mean, uh, there was a story that said, you know, some of this might have been uh, due to antidepressants and things like that. Uh, I don't know, medication or drugs, uh, could that play a role in triggering somebody? I mean, they've got pain and anger. And then, of course, the extreme manifestation of expressing that turns out to be murder, mass murder. Uh, is there any connection there? Well, I, I don't know that medication makes anybody do anything wrong. Um, it can medication can maybe depress people, or maybe it can be antidepressants um, gives them that maybe that, that euphoric high. Um, but most people who take medications are not going to go out and, and kill people. Uh, so you'd have to have some kind of something else going on there. I suspect it's going to be things in the family that have built up over time have taken their toll. And when these two guys came together, they kind of fit well together, you know, kind of got a hand in a glove. And, and so they, they could com, uh, commiserate with one, one another. Um, and now, they've, now they're out there commiserating, you know, trying to stay off the radar. But eventually it's all going to come to an end. Well, we hope so, uh, sooner rather than yeah. later and without further incident. But uh... Exactly. Fascinating to uh, get your perspective and insight on this, Mr. Hickey. Appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you so much. You got it, Eric Hickey. And, uh, Hickey uh, is a criminal psychologist at uh, California State University. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.